0: One elephant,
1: two elephant,
0: three elephant,
1: four elephant,
2: five elephant, six elephant, seven elephant, eight elephant, nine elephant. Ten, Ten elephant. elephant. All right, not bad. Get
1: fucking good at that. I will tell you that, boy. I'm getting good at that.
2: <laughs> You're getting good at counting elephants. Fuck yeah! Heffalumps, pink elephants, <laughs>
1: elephants on parade.
2: I don't have a comeback for that. <laughs> <laughs> Attention! Uh, hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey podcast. I am. Joined by, I'm joined today, and as always by. Do I have that right? Did I parse you that do. correctly? I did. I'm okay. Beautifully done. Yeah. Beautifully uh, okay. done. By uh, Jason Johnston Yellen, my good friend and business partner.
1: <laughs> I see you, what you've <laughs> done there. You've taken you've taken a complete picture. Yep. You've taken the jigsaw to it. Yes. You've shoveled it all about. Yes. And then you've reintroduced the sentences in a random order. Yeah.
2: And it's one of those things, you know, it's like dropping your favorite mug and you have to figure out how to put it back together after you've broken it. And I don't think I have figured it out, but hey, it's back together. And so long as you drink from the outer part of the rim, you won't get any um, uh, tea on you when you drink. Just
1: call me Kobayashi.
2: (laughs) Wow. Look at you.
1: So we're in early November. We are. As we are recording this, we are pre-Whiskey Jubilee Chicago.
2: Oof, not too far to go.
1: Even when we release this, Mm -hmm. we will be pre-Whiskey Jubilee Chicago. That's true. Depending on when our dear listeners listen to it, we will be in the vicinity of Whiskey Jubilee Chicago, or you could be listening to this two years in the future. And I love that you're you're catching up.
2: Every scenario. Continue. Sorry.
1: I'm just, I'm just, I, I've said this to you before. I like thinking about the lives of our listeners, and when you and I started this podcast, I didn't really think about having listeners. Okay. I was just talking to you, mm-hmm. discussing the person we'd interviewed. But now we've got so many people who either email us, or tweet us, or Facebook Messenger us, or yeah. tell us at shows, or tell us at tastings, loving the podcast. Now, I can't help but think about our listeners, and they are very dear to me. And, um, and now I have wandered so far from my original point. Um, yes, I was going to ask you. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> having framed it around the Jubilee. Okay. Uh, you and I are doing a fair bit of traveling at the moment
2: with, yes. with
1: us hitting the N of O-N-D and mm-hmm. just completing the O of O-N-D.
2: Uh, Do you think r- people know what O-N-D is?
1: I, our listeners definitely do. I have no doubt about it. Um, we, may, we may receive the occasional email from a new listener who says, I don't know what OND is. And I say, well, ask someone. Just don't ask us. Sh-
2: should we maybe just... <laughs> uh, OND October, November, December. There you go. Continue, I was going to say, so
1: long as you don't back it up, I'm okay <laughs> with no, you no. just throwing those three months out there.
2: Okay, so we are in the end of the OND. We're traveling a bit. Trying back? to back it up. Um, no, yeah, so I'm, tra- I'm just trying to realign you after I derailed you.
1: Where have you been and what are you seeing?
2: Where have I been and what have I been seeing?
1: So let me yeah. let me let me lead uh, with an answer to my own question. So we have been in Scotland. We have been working diligently. Yes. Um, I've come back and I've gone to North Carolina.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I've gone to New Orleans, uh, which was my very first trip.
2: And your first time pronouncing the city name, but go on.
1: New Orleans? New Orleans. No, 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 no. No, no, no. I'll tell you what I learned. See if you don't live in the place that you just pronounced, you don't get to say it like that. Oh really? Am I appropriating? Oh, that's not how this works pronunciation. Yeah, you're you're misappropriating somebody's town name right now. You don't get to do that. So to, uh, I've
2: got to call it New Orleans.
1: And that's why I've got a little bit of a hybrid going on. I've connected the new <laughs> to the Orleans. New Orleans. <sighs> yes. I, I texted my wife one of the mornings. I said, "It's the rain is fair pissing down in Nola. Yeah, and Nola. she wrote me back and said, you've, you've only been there 24 hours, but you're saying too much. And so you, yeah, apparently, you can't say Nola. Uh, you can't say Norlands. You certainly can't say Norlands. That's, oof. I'd give you an example to show you how bad that is, but I can't even say the the example. So, I, I don't know. I kind of disagree with that. No, that that's because you're an incorrect person. You know
2: what? This turns into taco restaurants being shut down because this happened in Portland. Uh, there was a whole to do about some. Taco shop being shut down because it was run by uh, non-Mexican people, saying that they were appropriating their culture.
1: Have you Snopes that 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 sounds like it's ripe I for a
2: thing f- I feel like I read it on the the Daily, <laughs> the, the National Enquirer. No, I storm Stormfront. Did storm, you read on storm, Stormfront? Read that, whatever that yeah. is, I read it on that. Uh
1: huh. Yeah, I I once wandered into that thinking it was Star Wars fan fiction, um, <laughs> and I
2: oh and you were God. psyched for that. You're like, woof, woof, uh, Star Wars actually, fan fiction.
1: Actually, you're going to be surprised. There there was quite a lot of who's who's the side that the rebels are fighting against. Um Because the there was some of that tone. There was a bit of that tone to it. So maybe it was Star Wars fan <laughs> believe, maybe fiction after it was.
0: all. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah,
1: he's one of the good guys. I was thinking more of the heavy breathing guy in the black mask.
2: <laughs> there's, there's so many ways you could take that. Um,
1: Wait a okay. second! I was watching Pulp Fiction. What am I thinking about? <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Bring out the Gimp. Okay, so you were and in then the, earlier this week, yes, yes,
1: I I saw you in
2: Connecticut. <laughs> you did, yeah. It was it was a quick trip, but a good one yep um and i think you say, you've say re-
1: quick again quick how are you managed to say quick so that it sounds like cool whip
2: <laughs> it doesn't sound like cool whip
1: quick say quick again quick quick and cool
2: whip, cool whip. <laughs> quick cool whip quick cool whip, cool whip. <laughs> oh, gosh, this is the most. This is so derailed. Okay, so.
1: No, it's not. I, no, I've just completed all my travels of the last uh, four weeks. Now it's your turn.
2: Okay. Uh, so where was I? I was in Scotland. Yes. And I came back.
1: I remember that fondly. We Actually,
2: we touched on this last episode a little bit, a, a, a bit of our travels. Uh, then I had a good week with James Wills from Kilhoman in, in New York with a quick little jaunt into... Massachusetts.
1: Our listeners just heard that word again, didn't you listeners?
2: What? Did I say quick? They th- heard it. They I heard I, it sound like cool. I thought word you again. were gonna be on me about the word jaunt. Oh no, that was fine. Okay. And, uh, like. and yeah. <laughs> Then I came back and last night actually I was in New Hampshire. Oh Yes. Oh, Man, I knew it, you
1: were at a tasting last night. I did not know you'd gone to New Hampshire.
2: Yep. New Hampshire Uh, And I was actually just a few tables down From our friends at um, Westland and Bercolati Which was nice Lovely, lovely, lovely Yeah, big, big event there Poured for countless people I'm actually surprised that you can That I'm able to speak at all Given how loud it was Oh, can I tell you something about this tasting really quickly? Um, very quickly though Yeah, okay There was, across from me, a stage. And on the stage was a microphone. Oh. And occasionally, a man would get up, standing in front of that microphone, and they were auctioning off bottles of Pappy Van Winkle. So Mm. they were able to do a live auction there. They were selling Mm. a 15-year-old and a 23-year-old.
0: At
1: least they had
2: one good one. No, they're both good. The 15 is the better of the two, but so let me ask you this.
1: <laughs> Remembering that I'm Scottish.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but how how much do you think those two bottles went for?
1: Well, I think we both know that you follow the secondary market of bourbon much closer than I do. It's not that um, I follow it, I'm just bombarded by it. Yeah, I've never I've never even flipped a bottle on the secondary market um <laughs> tune in later in the episode to understand what this joke's about <laughs> um so so i'm I'm a little off uh on my my pappy pricing i know that it's silly overpriced i'm gonna say um one thousand dollars on the 15 year old and i'm gonna say Ten thousand dollars on the twenty-three-year-old.
2: So one of them, you were pretty damn close. The second one, you overshot. You overshot. Okay. Right. Uh, Check s- out. So the the fifteen-year-old that sold for just about eleven $1, hundred. Look at me. And, I know some things. And then the twenty-three-year-old went for thirty-one hundred. Oh no! Yeah. Yeah. Huh. No. Ten thousand is not. No one. No one. First off, no one should be paying 3100 No one should be paying more than... It should be about a $300 bottle. Um, huh. That's another story, though. And but the 15-year-old yeah. should be around a $100 bottle. Uh, it's When I was buying it, when it was readily available... Now, this was... Five, when six I was
1: a boy. Back when I
2: was buying Pappy Van Winkle, I would buy it for 59 No, nay, $69 on the shelf. And if I wanted to, I'd say, Sonny, come over here and get me a second bottle. I kind of turned Irish there at the end. Um <laughs>
1: Yeah, don't let the listeners hear your Irish accent. <laughs> it gets racist real fast.
2: Ah, sha, 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 there he is, there No, I think it, I think the suggested retail price is is around seventy nine for that now.
1: I was I was just rounding up, Joshua. Yeah, we're rounding
2: up to uh, one hundred to oh, uh, one hundred. Okay.
1: Yeah, I, I just wanted to make the point that if one's three hundred, one's one hundred, all you had to do was stick an extra zero in front of each of them, and you'd get their auction price. Yeah,
2: that's pretty much it. It's that's what I was trying times. to achieve there. You
1: once again derailed me, but that's okay. That's mm. okay. Well, you know what? What is it we say in the intro? Very best friend. I think you've you've been known to say on occasion.
2: I have been, but I say it sincerely. Who's that? Just a friend. You've made a new friend. Oh, a friend. Since when have you had other friends? Oh, a friend. I knew him from when we was doing trials at West Ham. He's moved into the area. He's just some guy. Some guy? Oh, he's just some guy. Oh, he's just some guy. That's all it is. Just a friend from when Jay had trials at West Ham that never happened. Don't forget the thumbs up. Oh, friend.
0: Oh, oh new friend. 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 Oh, friend. He's my friend. Oh, 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 friend. Oh, friend. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure what that thing was at, but OK. <laughs> yeah. I'm always sarcastically saying to him, yeah, see that Joshua had? Best friend. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, if only the the listeners could see your eyes roll as you said it twice. <laughs> Best roll, friend, roll. Oh, he's so dear to me. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: okay, so I think I think we've brought everyone up to date on our travels. Uh, what are we seeing was also one part of my question. Uh, are you still seeing? Obviously, you just mentioned the auction pricing on some pappies. There, are you? You're seeing rabid constituents out there. People are, are still hungry for the brown liquid. Uh, you, you said at some point you were four deep last night. That was during the show. <laughs> during the show.
2: What's that? Like the in-betweeners? Three fingers deep and clunge? Um,
1: <laughs> now that was a masterclass.
2: <laughs> uh, Yeah, you know, let, let's put it this way. and I, I, I'm going to paint a very big picture. Right, yeah, so I, th-
1: I think that's appropriate.
2: So year over year, you know, I I have monthly numbers that that I aim for and that I need to to hit for everything that um, is imported and of course single cast nation stuff as well, which is separate from the um, from the Impex portfolio and, or at least I view it separately. You, you know what I mean? We have our own numbers that we're looking at, so I kind of yeah. think about it separately. Yeah. But when you look at the months, you see, if we're starting from January, January is actually pretty strong. Yeah. February, pretty strong, too. I mean, it's still cold, and people tend to drink spirits in colder weather. But as it starts warming up, the sales start to drop. And there's also a latitude to this as well.
1: They drop from the south to the north of America. Yeah right yeah although although I, I although i think somehow california breaks that california seems like a at least a 10 month market Yeah, Whereas,
2: it's, it's and i don't know why that is right
1: it's it's really it is, fascinating yeah. meanwhile florida for the brown spirits you could make an argument that florida is maybe a 4 month market it's it has a hard time for brown spirits and in in what we would consider the spring, the summer, and the fall. Mm. Um, the, those aren't the same seasons in Florida.
2: That's interesting. So, yeah. well, okay, so from... But you,
1: you continue to make your point. I just wanted to make a general yeah, no, point no, about no, latitude.
2: I, I think that's a, a good way... I think it's a good thing to bring up because I guess if I stepped back and actually thought about it, I'd say, oh, yeah, that actually makes good sense. But, you know, here in the Northeast even in march and april you could still get kind of chillier days may you can oh, still sure. get some chillier days 100% once, once june hits and july and august it's really june july and the first week or two of august where you're thinking oh crap <laughs> you know the sales just aren't there and, and what it is is just following the, the the natural sort of cyclical uh the natural cycle of what distributors buy? When do they buy it? And why are they buying it? And why are they buying it th- at that particular time? And they're basically following the lead of the retailers who they want to go heavy with spirits when it's starting to get cold. They want exactly. to keep that stock up as, as it remains cold. Uh, as soon as it starts getting warmer, things change a little bit, and they're going to focus more on rosé and and white wines and IPAs and, you know, all this other stuff, or, or if it's spirits, maybe it's tequila, maybe it's mezcal, maybe it's, you know, vodka and, and white rum and, and all this, and so you just see this yep. sort of cycle going on, and so what am I seeing? I'm seeing the natural uptick in in sales which is good and you know you go from shop to shop to shop and the spirits aisles just have a bit more traffic than they do in the warmer months
1: yeah and 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 i think that's all very well said part of my question was also month over month Mm -hmm. so november last year Mm -hmm. november the year before Mm -hmm. how are they looking compared to the november and as much as we only just entered it you still seeing those early November crowds the way you did 2017, oh, yeah. 2016, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 2015 yep.
2: yep oh without a doubt I'm not seeing much of a change there at least at least not in my markets I think the 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 tendency here in the U S to lean mo- a bit more toward uh, American brown spirits over you know Scotch whiskey or other whiskeys that that's still kind of growing though. I'm seeing uh, that, I'm starting to see that tapering off just a little bit, but it's still pretty damn present.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The the reason I'm asking is, you know, I've mentioned it on the podcast many a time, but one of the questions we're asking of industry people when we're hanging out with them is, what are you seeing? How's it looking? Yeah. Are we still on the crest of the wave? Are we starting to dip a little bit? Um, And that's why I'm asking. That's also why I'm paying close attention this season. How's it looking? Bourbon, obviously, still mental, still crazy mental. Yeah, as we just discussed with the the pappy pricing,
2: at auction. Well, you in a way, and we may get to this a bit later in the podcast. You you didn't ask that exact question of our of our guest uh, Jason Parker, but you got pretty damn close to it. Exactly about what he's seeing in the industry. And, and I, I think rather than jump right into that now, we, we want to introduce him a bit. We want to talk, yeah. talk about Copperworks a bit, let him talk about Copperworks a bit, but get into that. Because I thought that his, his input, his insight into the whiskey industry, especially from I think his fairly unique perspective, could be a glimpse into the bigger picture of what we may see in the next three to five years.
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's why I like asking these questions. And I think if, if our listeners are going to tune into an industry podcast, you want to hear what people in the industry are thinking about the industry.
2: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sure.
1: Hugely important. It's not just what Jason and Joshua think about the industry. It's what are the people we're encountering most days of the week? What do they think? What are they seeing? Yeah. So we'll circle back to this with Jason later in the episode. In the meantime, though, and our listeners have seen it on the masthead, we're going to introduce Jason Parker, co-founder and president mm-hmm. at Copperworks Distilling Company in Seattle. Mm-hmm. His uh, co-founder, Micah Nutt, was in Europe at the time. All oh, right, What was he doing and in so Europe? Do you know? Probably selling Copperworks would be my mm. guess. There you go.
2: Okay. I don't <laughs> you know, know if he was, was on vacation casks. or...
1: Uh, do any of us ever go on vacation, Joshua? We're always turning vacations into busman's
2: holidays. <laughs> we did do five days in Tuscany Need right. I remind you I, I
1: was drinking the red wine As part of a busman's holiday <laughs> It's <was> all research <laughs> We drank the Glen Grant Five That was part of work
2: Oh, that, that's that's right That was hard work <laughs> right. Okay, so Jason Parker Mike yes. is in, in, in Europe He was, to... was in Europe Yep and, and so Jason hosted me
1: at Copperworks For the better part of four hours Wow And The conversation did not lull at any point. Uh, He was just a tremendous chap to hang out with, discuss the processes, discuss maturation, discuss uh, his own releases from the distillery, and then, uh, as listeners will hear later in the episode, discuss the state of the craft industry. And and just like in the conversation with Becky and Scott Harris at Catoctin Creek, craft continues to be an an uncomfortable fit uh, for the industry. Yeah. It can mean so many things to so many people. It's a it's a word I keep using. Something better will come along, and I'll try. I hope to something it.
2: better comes along because it just it seems more and more to to have uh, a bit a bit of a, a negative connotation. Maybe not from from all drinkers, but the more and more people talk about it, you say, yeah, it's kind of crafty. Ooh, it's craft. And and I and and the thing is there's no two distilleries alike. And some of these craft producers are producing amazing juice and they're all trying to do their very, very best. Yep. And, and I think, you know, you had said something a few episodes back where you said, what distillers are doing now is so new, it's so different that you almost wish it didn't have the word whiskey attached to it mm-hmm, because yep. then it's held to a different standard
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, you know, which, which is a, a sort of interesting way to look at it. And it almost seems as if they're trying to throw craft in there to flash up the word whiskey. Craft works with beer. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem to work with whiskey. And I, I hope you're right. I hope there's another term that comes along that helps to, to better talk about craft whiskey in a more positive yeah, you
1: know, I think that's one of the things Jason's grappling with at Copperworks is and it's, it's a bit like um, Becky and, and Scott at Catoctin Creek. It's a bit like Matt Hoffman at, at Westland. What's our identity? What mm. can we do mm. that somebody larger than us, with more money than us, um, is doing day in and day out? How do we zig when they zag? How do we zag when they zig? Mm, Uh, And for me, that's part of what the craft word means. And I think you're right, it fits craft beer, maybe easier than it fits craft whiskey. But for for me, it's the potential for those industry leaders to be zigging when others are zagging. Yeah. Uh, And I think when you've got Jason, who brings in 25 years of brewing experience before he turns his attention to distilling, and Mike and Nutt is a, a very established uh, Pacific Northwest brewer as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, before becoming a, a well-regarded distiller, what did they learn in that industry? Yeah, yeah. And what are they then able to apply to Copperworks? Yeah, that allows Copperworks to do something that that maybe nobody else in the industry is doing, or very few in the industry are doing. Mm-hmm. That 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 to me is something very interesting, and I think. From the very first part of their process, they're doing something quite unique. Agreed. Should we
2: hand the floor over to Jason? Yeah, let's, let's let Jason talk. We've been talking for a while, a long while. And uh, and I know you wanted to sort of limit how much we were going to talk before we introduce <laughs> our guests, but you <laughs> seem to amp it up. So oh. I blame you. Damn you! I'm blame the victim and um, shakes fist. <laughs> Yeah, let's hand it over to the other Jason. Okay,
3: so the um, genesis of this uh, distillery, being that Micah and I are both brewers, both home brewers, and I've been a professional brewer since 89, is that we decided to make a high quality beer. And we're doing that in partnerships with three breweries the Pike Place Brewery, the Elysian Brewery, and the Fremont Brewing. Okay. So, some really great world class brewers with, by the way, really great world-class breweries. So, you know, way better controls than you would normally find in any distillery, in fact. Mm -hmm. Brewers have to be a lot more controlled. So we're brewing for flavor. We do two beer recipes. We do one that is 100% pale malt. So we're doing a very um, common thing that you might find in Scotland. We've talked uh, briefly about how the Scots are looking for extract, mainly for yield. Mm -hmm. Um, We're looking mainly for flavor. But we, we, so we make two, um, two recipes, 100% pale malt, and then one that is based on a scotch ale. The last beer I made up at the Pike Place Brewery was this one called the Kilt Lifter. It's uh, about 9% ruby red alcohol beer. Um, we, we use twice as many caramel and crystal malts as that beer has. So this is a very strong, wow. uh, yeah, ridiculous amount of, of specialty malts. That's expensive. Those are even less fermentable. So we're even getting less yield. Mm-hmm. So back to our story. We take, the, we take a beer, that we, a sweet wort that we've made in one of these three locations. We truck that sweet wort over to the fermenter. We put beer yeast in. So we're literally taking yeast from the cone of the Elysian brewery. So not a powdered yeast, not a dried yeast, but a okay. fresh yeast. We put it in, and immediately we have fermentation. Uh, You can almost count 15 minutes, and you start seeing bubbles come out. And by the end of an hour, it's in rapid fermentation. So none of the lag times, none of the um, opportunities that you might have if you're using a powdered yeast or a dried yeast. It's not going through a growth phase. It's already doing Hmm. fermentation. We do that fermentation at 70 degrees Fahrenheit for seven days, and then we chill the tanks with glycol jackets to 35 degrees for two weeks. During that time, the yeast flocks or flocculates into this 60 degree cone. It leaves bright beer above. All breweries do that. All breweries lager their beer. It Mm -hmm. makes them not taste green anymore. It gets rid of the yeast so that you can then either bottle or keg that or if you're really uh, getting all of the yeast cells out, centrifuge or filter it, but we don't do either of those. It's enough with a cold it's crash. It's enough with the cold crash for two weeks. So we put that into, um, we pump that into the beer stripping still. So one of the reasons that we're going to start with a bright beer is when Micah and I were tasting a lot of um, small distillery products that were doing either grains in fermentation and distilling or at least you know partial lottering or full lottering, but still yeast in distilling we were getting autolysis flavors so where yeast breaks open and you get that kind of meaty character okay. during um, barrel aging that in our opinions, expressed itself as Play-Doh. That little uh-huh. child's... I've uh, encountered that, Play-Doh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's a flavor that we um, attributed to that. We may be wrong, but it, it drove our decision to always do the whole lager. lager. So two-week lagering. Mm-hmm. So there is, going into the, um, into the still is a, about a 9% beer, which is higher. Than most washes. And you were very kind and you let me taste that. Yes. There, there's a lot of sweetness to it but it's
1: something that I would happily drink on a summer's day. It's It's got the rich maltiness to it but it doesn't have the same sour note that I've maybe had in some other washes in Scotland. What's responsible for that?
3: Well a couple of things. One is we boil in the brewery, which is a kind of bizarre thing to do for a distiller. But remember, we're brewers who have become distillers. So we're actually trying to differentiate. So by doing a sanitary fermentation, meaning we boil, that denatures enzymes. So there is no chance that during fermentation we're going to develop more fermentable sugars. That happens in all other distilleries that okay. don't boil. It's literally continuing to, uh, to degrade to small sugars in the fermenter. The second reason that we boil is um, we wanted to pitch a pure strain of yeast and have no bacteria fermentation at all. So nothing off the grain husk, nothing in the air. We treat this like a sanitary brewery. So we literally hire people with brewing experience. Distilling experience is less important than brewing experience because knowing sanitation is a thing that... All brewers have. It's hard to retrain a sloppy distiller to be a careful brewer. Okay. So, will that
1: sweetness that we encounter in the in this? you would call it wash at this point yeah you would you would always call
3: it wash in any other distillery we call it beer because it's rooted a beer a brewery made of a beer yeast and treated like beer so we call that a beer stripping still not a wash still
1: cool i wanted to tread lightly with the terminology
3: (laughs) not piss off the brewers in here Um, and so that that sweetness that
1: we have in your beer yeah will then carry on through your distillation?
3: When we taste, um, surprise of surprises, something that we didn't know. And again, I'll um, reference Tranahan's Colorado call a lot of whiskey. When we first tasted that, we were getting a beer finish. And of course, that was made in a similar fashion. It was made from a brewery. Um, with that sugar coming through, it literally makes it all the way through the distillate, all the way through the barrel, and into the bottle. Okay. So you will pick up a mouthfeel that It helps um, reduce the alcohol burn. So we traditionally, now we've done 13 releases of whiskey. We have always hit about 100 or more in proof. I think uh, two releases were below 100, and the rest of them have been above. So you know, 50% alcohol. That would normally be a very painful experience if you're drinking just straight all the time. But in fact, with our our beer, you may not have noticed, but that was a 9% beer you were just drinking. But you, yeah. you mentioned, doesn't this, you mentioned like a summer day. Yeah. And then with a, the spirit in here will be and two proofs so of 51%. And I okay. don't think you're going to feel it's quite as hot as, okay. uh, as you would normally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, Certainly one of the things Joshua in selecting casts, Josh and I are always looking for is a, a mouthfeel. And I always mm-hmm. talk to people in my tastings that if you can get the oils in there, mm-hmm. that those oils that relate to that mouthfeel will protect your taste buds. That's right. And you'll avoid some of that heat. Or some of the you know one of the worst words that people say to me is raw. Or that's raw. Right, right. Oh, that drives me crazy. (laughs) But but if you can get good, rich mouthfeel in there with good wash slash beer, good distillation, good maturation you can be protected against that higher alcohol burn. So that's
3: one way. That's definitely one. Lipids, the fats mm-hmm. that come out. But mm-hmm. the other way is sugars, complex sugars. And that's not being explored except for by brewers become distillers. Yeah. So that's, uh, I think it's a new area for flavor development. Beautiful. And uh, that's one that we're really excited about. And we come by it naturally, so it's easy to do.
2: <laughs> you and I, Jason, before we started recording, we, we were talking about something completely different, and you mentioned a word. Corollary. Co- co- corollary. Co- corollary. <laughs> yeah, that's the exact word I brought up. <laughs> Can you pronounce it for me? Because that word sucks. Um, I
1: also have a hard time with it. Corollary. Corollary.
2: <laughs> I see a corollary there you go yep 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 Yep.
1: Ding, ding 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 ding
2: between what copper works as a brewer as brewers who now distill I see a connection between what they're doing and what mezcal producers are doing and by that I mean when you look at how mezcal is made all of the attention is paid to everything before distillation
1: Mm, I see what you're trying to say here right.
2: So with mescal, they've got to wait for the agave to get to seven years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. you know whatever it is depending on the agave, what is the soil doing? Where is it being grown? Uh, how are they roasting it? are they and then you know are what types of stills they're using definitely plays a part. But really, it is the polar opposite to, if you compare it to whether it's bourbon production or or malt whiskey production, where they harvest a grain, they make a beer out of it, they distill that, they put it into cask, and let the magic happen in the cask. Let the cask do the heavy lifting as far as dictating what those flavors are going to be. And... The reason why I say there's a connection between what Copperworks is doing and what miscal producers are doing is they are brewers trying to make a damn good beer mm-hmm. to then distill. So they're putting a lot of attention to the mashing and the fermenting. You know what he was talking about with their with their fermenters and and what they're doing there and the, all of that residual sugar that mm-hmm. he mentioned too, mm-hmm. and, and the fact that and we'll we'll talk about it or. Jason will talk about it a little bit when they're looking for stills, you know, mentioning to Forsyth's that, yeah, there's the beer that we're going to be putting in here, AKA wash, uh, is going to have a lot of residual sugar and here are the flavors that we're looking to achieve and how can you help us? And I, and I don't think that that messaging to Forsyth was something that they were used to hearing. Yeah. Right. uh,
1: And I, I feel like just as you perfectly transition from the fermentation to the distillation, we should allow Jason Parker back in at this point to say what he needs to say. Perfect. So, so continue talking to me okay. about these these foresight skills.
3: There we go. Now, these are beautiful. You can look in and see the coils are just. CIP'd it, so we got them, the coils are kind of clean and shiny again. Um, you know, they do some caramelization, so after about every six uh, beer stripping runs, we'll um, CIP those. And are you maybe
1: finding with more sugar going into your stills that are yeah, a lot caramelizing faster yep. than others? Exactly.
3: Um, which is one of the reasons uh, when we were in Scotland, we were visiting distilleries that actually never CIP'd their stills. They either had <laughs> coils or they just had plates on the bottom, and they just didn't need to right? It's just didn't need to or didn't bother to. Uh-huh. Sometimes it depends on who It's you all ask. about flavor, Jason. <laughs> it's all about flavor. <laughs> uh, so we CIP this one. That's the only one we do and really only um, to the level of the coils. So everything else just stays. You can kind of see the, the bathtub ring in there really clean. So these were made for us in Scotland. You know, obviously I'm from Bowling Green, Kentucky, and obviously Vendome is a Kentucky steel manufacturer. would have been a great company to have worked with. They're 110 years old back when we were talking to them. But the fact is they make bourbon stills. I mean, they're capable of making pot stills. Westland has them. Um, it just didn't seem like the right thing to do for malt whiskey. Okay. So we looked for um, uh, independent steel manufacturers, you know, that's not owned by Diageo. And we found Forsyth and uh, started talking to Richard Senior and then Richard Junior, and found out that they were interested and willing. I think we were at that time uh, the third order that they had in America for pot stills, and that actually wasn't that long ago. It was 2011. Uh You know, they're 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 way up there now. (laughs) Kind of exploded Um, (laughs) a little bit. bit. (laughs) They quoted a nine-month lead time. It took them 15 months, which is perfect, because we thought we would take nine months to build out, and it took us 15 months. So it, everything uh, came in perfectly. Um, I built a lot of breweries, and so I felt qualified uh, to uh, be the general contractor for installing the stills and all. But when it came time to um, commission them, we flew Neil Bogue over. He's one of their engineers. And, uh, we had installed the stills upside down, but other than that, it was all fine. No, just joking. <laughs> I was
1: going to say, did you think you were planting an onion?
3: <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was fine. Uh, so, you know, he, he uh, advised us on how to um, use the stills uh, in the in the best uh, way for the flavor that we were making. That was one of the things that was new to him, too, is that we were actually starting with a 9% uh, Beer with a lot of sugar left in it. So there were some changes there.
1: So the question for me is in listening to anybody putting together a distillery, it's that wherewithal of thought to think we want to do X, and then that'll be followed by Y, and we'll have to put these things in place. Given your rich brewing history before you came to this, you clearly knew flavours of beers. When it then came to distilling, how did you know what you wanted? And did you go about getting it right off the bat, or was it a little bit of trial and error? What was your process like?
3: Okay, that's uh, a great question, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of different answers. Is uh, one, we certainly didn't know what the end goal would be, but we did um, do some pilots, or we should say we had a uh, we knew a guy who had a still who did some pilots. Ha-ha. Okay. <laughs> anyway, um, what what we discovered is that homebrewed beer distilled in uh, two pot distillation was a delicious product, and so we didn't know what we were going to end up with, but we were willing to take a couple of bets Mm -hmm. that if we had really good distilling equipment, we had a really good beer, just like we had done in a small batch, that it would end up tasting even better if we put it in full-size barrels. So we briefly considered in a business plan only a spreadsheet um, doing something other than 53-gallon barrels and decided against that before we even um, built the distillery. That luxury of having enough capital to start and being able to do that is something I advise anybody who is trying to open. The second thing, answer your question, is um, I always think that one of the reasons that a distillery is successful versus not is because they have a focus and they go deep instead of wide. Mm-hmm. And we decided, you know, so no fruit. So we can't do anything in the fruit category, no flavors, no um, n- nothing other than whiskey and gin. Mm-hmm. Now we make a vodka, but of course you know that a vodka is the base for making a gin. So we have to make that grain neutral spirit, and we're happy to sell it. We're proud of it, but we're not going down a road of flavored vodkas or anything <laughs> else like that. Right.
1: You don't seem like the flavored vodka
3: type. <laughs> right. Neither you nor Micah. <laughs> right. And 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 actually, gin is a um, gin is a, a thing that. You know, when we looked at the balance sheet uh, in, in, in paper, is like, we got to do something to stay open for the first few years. If we're going to be down on the Pike Place Market or the Seattle waterfront, yep. um, that's just not cheap rent. So, uh, And we didn't want to build multiple distilleries. We wanted to build the last one first. So we didn't want to start out in a small industrial warehouse and then in a few years go build something else, unlike a lot of the distillers who are... Um, um, can be excused for the naivete because they're young. We were old enough to know how stupid this was and still did it. Uh-huh. And so we weren't going to do it twice, right? So we just built here. Wow, that's a,
1: but again, it's that kind of that forethought. It just you know, if you think of people who want to get their doors open and get their stills running, you might not necessarily cut some corners, but you may do some things that you haven't fully thought mm-hmm. through. Mm-hmm. To walk in here and hear kind of your planning and say we want to build the last one first—that's a big step and that's a lot of money.
3: Yeah, yeah, and a lot of commitment. Yeah, um, and and frankly, Mike and I were both willing to walk away from the idea if we couldn't do it. And that's the big. right way. So that was part of it. You know, the location, the stills, and the capital that it took—all had to come together. Yeah. And if they didn't, we were comfortable saying, well, you know, let's just don't do this. That's but if they did, then let's do this. Well, in three months, it all came together. We're like, crap, we're doing this. <laughs> I lost a lot of sleep those nights. Uh-huh. Um, the the, um, uh, the uh, A third answer to your question is that we have not even gotten close to figuring it all out. I actually lead a tour a couple of three times a week and when we give that to her I almost always end up saying by the time we're done doing this we'll be qualified to do this because we are not at an endpoint. we don't even have a consistent whiskey we're proud of that and there's no way for us to have it with the experiments we have running but they i will tell you this they are informed decision uh, experiments they're not um they're not shotgun approaches Uh, let's just try this and see if it works They're 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 based on the philosophy of, of flavor that we're working with.
1: And neither of you, neither of the two of you, seem like those types of chaps. That's right. Just kind of That's right. Think on your feet, put some things together, and see what happens. Yeah. It's see anybody who, from day one, went with fifty-three gallon casks. Right. You, you knew what you were about. Right. Uh, there, there's a there's a definite plan there.
3: So we feel we feel um, uh, comfortable with the flavors that are coming out. And now, after five years of doing this, we've got a whole lot more ideas to explore. But, like I said, actually deeper rather than um, wider. And I think we also have justified some of our decisions, uh, most of them, I would say, but um, improved some of our other decisions. So um, barrels are a really good um, uh, topic, which we can when we walk back there, we'll 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 talk about this. We'll love to get to that. Do you want to... take a look at any of the other uh, distilling apparatus and talk about some of that? Absolutely, okay. Yes,
1: absolutely. A- anything you can add. Cuts, levels, ABVs.
3: So um, one of the neat things about um, when you're a, a bigger distillery, uh, I don't consider ourselves a bigger distiller. I'm talking about the big Scottish distilleries, the big Japanese distilleries, etc., one of the things that they always do is they buy world-class equipment. They don't build their own stills. And I'm not saying that people aren't qualified to build stills who sure. do, but we didn't feel qualified to build stills. What we felt qualified to do is make great wash and learn all about the on really world-class equipment. So we bought that. I wanted a spirit safe because I'm just like, <laughs> you know what? We're going to be on the waterfront. It's the sexy piece of yep. eye candy there. Yep. And through the glass and windows. And through the glass the windows, room. yeah. Yep. So um, a spirit safe, which, you know, puts you back um, a couple of nickels, um, is still one of the pride and joys and one of the most remarkable things about being in this distillery. We love having this Forsyth Spirit Safe. You know, it's just like the the ones in Scotland, Uh, nothing fancy except for that it's just got 250 years of um, design heritage to us. It's just beautiful. We have um, a couple of things that um, usually blow the Scots away. We have sample ports on the exit pipes out of the spirit safe because we indeed can and do taste mm-hmm. throughout the wash, throughout the spirit run, we're tasting flavors and monitoring this every 30 minutes. Oh, interesting. That is something that is. Uh, you, brewers always taste things all the way along. You know, Every day when they're taking gravities or tasting the beer, how's it taste? Where's it going? Do I smell any butterscotch? Is there anything going on in there? You know, it's unfortunate that because of the, the laws in Scotland, uh, distillers didn't develop a skill of smelling and tasting spirits coming off the still. Now, some of them do have access to it in labs, but for the most part, it's not what they make cuts by. Correct. It's what we made cuts by based on numbers. So our first cut, when we were in Scotland, we went to 10 different distilleries and everybody was very transparent with us. What are your cuts? They would tell us, you know, we cut at 150 or we cut after two hours or we cut here. We do, after um, the four shots, we get a little bit of acetone out. We make our first cut at 147 proof. So we cut from heads to hearts at 147 proof. And then at about three hours later, we cut at 121 proof, which is pretty low for a Scotch distillery, but you remember, we're not making some of the same flavors that you're making. So that longer, that lower cut, so this is actually a pretty tight um, cut, and and the the heads is actually a a wider um, phase than you might find a lot of Scotch. In other words, they might cut earlier from heads to hearts than we do, like Mm -hmm. around 150 proof. Uh, But we cut at 147 and 121, We'll end up with a batch of whiskey at around 135 proof, and that's our, um, our new-make spirit, regardless of which of those two recipes we're running. So whether it's uh, the pale malt or the five malt, we do them both that way. Part of the reason we do them both that way is because literally we're still exploring the flavors that come out of the barrels. So it's taken us five years to get to the point to where we have mature whiskey coming out, and we can make a decision to make a change if we need to. Um, We haven't changed the yeast. We haven't changed anything other than on that pale malt. I told you we're doing a variety of single-farm and single-vintage, single-farm malts. So so right now we're keeping the cuts just at that. Um, We dilute, and when we talk about barrel aging, I'll tell you more, but we dilute the... uh, uh, um, you make whiskey to one of five different entry proofs, but usually um, centered around 115 proofs. So we do 110, 112, 115, 120, and occasionally, like maybe five or six barrels ever, 125, the highest okay. illegal. We're, we're finding that with our two cooperages, Independent Stave and Kelvin um, Cooperage, Around 115 to 110 is kind of the sweet spot. And it depends on toast and char and all that stuff. We can go back there and talk about that more. (laughs) So, yeah, this has been really fun. And part of this uh, ability, we use a digital density meter most of the time to um, test the ABV for the cuts instead of, um, you know, the the hydrometer or the Mm -hmm. alcohol meters that are built into the spirit safe. But we do use these when we're at the end of the run.
1: So when you're saying, Jason, that you have, you've got your 147 proof, you'll cut it over mm-hmm. right to 121 proof, if I'm remembering mm-hmm, that correctly, mm-hmm. and then you're you're saying, but we're tasting, we're tasting along yeah. the way, will you make adjustments yeah. to those proofs, yeah. depending on what you're tasting? Yeah, if, And what are you looking for <coughs> in the flavours?
3: Well, it... it, it uh, uh, it's hard to tell you exactly what the flavors are. It would be easier to say if it tastes like the flavors that Copperworks has been making, uh-huh. if it tastes like the flavors that our previous releases of the same grain bill, tastes like, that's where we cut. So what we're looking for is a pretty significant amount of sweetness, softness. Flor- you wouldn't believe the amount of fruit and florals. I'll open up the, uh, um, the tanks behind here, and we can smell the, the new make, the even the... Um, The low wines would be interesting to smell. They're going to be. Have you smelled many of those in Scotland? I have not. Okay. Well, it may be irrelevant, but um, (laughs) they're they're usually quite solventy smelling in Uh Scotland. Here, there is a crazy new make spirit character to it, but they're much sweeter, floral, and uh, fruity. Okay. Uh, When Scotsmen who are distillers uh, hang out here on the stillhouse deck and taste the new make whiskey coming out, they're literally blown away they just don't know how you get those flavors and we usually say well you know does malt matter and they say i didn't think so <laughs> that's good to hear but somebody coming a new, around but i have that. a new um, uh, <laughs> thing to explore and does yeast matter and by the way uh, yeast is also a commodity in scotland uh, yeast is almost always a dried cake yeast that comes from england and it's a um, it's a standard Yep. everybody uses the same yeast that's a big Surprise to a brewer.
1: Yeah, it's it's nice to go around some distilleries who are starting to say, mm-hmm. a, having our own yeast source mm-hmm. on site is good. B, we're very protective of the flavors of this yeast and yes. what that does. Few and far between. Yes. Um, but then you were also mentioning that the yield. Yeah. Um, is we don't even part know the idea. equation for we, it.
3: We literally don't want. To to know the yield at this point. That's not what's driving business. Uh, As you have probably heard many times, if you look at a bottle of whiskey, the most expensive thing in there is the packaging. Mm -hmm. The least expensive thing in there is the malt. So we can afford to throw a lot of malt potential yield away in order to hit flavors that differentiate Copperworks from all other distilleries. Mm -hmm. What we can't afford to do is chase those few pennies and end up tasting kind of standard or like everybody else. That's just no way to... um, to to compete. So we don't, we don't even know our efficiencies. And that's not, I I think I may have mentioned this before. That's not out of laziness. That's out of a desire not to steer by those numbers. Yeah. And I think if we knew them, we'd be horrified.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least your accountant would be.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, at this point, I'm still doing a lot of that accounting.
1: So, yeah. Yeah. In listening to Jason Parker there, I was somewhat floored somewhat surprised the the spirit safe for all intents purposes looks like a spirit safe out of scotland that four would make
0: yeah except
1: for the little tap on the bottom that that jason just made reference to yeah uh it wasn't a distillation day when i was there unfortunately Uh, so there was there was no use for the tap but what a really interesting addition and what a, what a wonderful little twist to see on a very well-established Scottish piece of equipment where, when you and I are over in Scotland, there's a bar going across the only moving part
2: yeah, of the, the spirit
1: safe. Yeah. And there's a massive padlock on the end of that bar. so, so uh, <laughs> now, now, don't let too many cats out of the bag.
0: Well,
2: <laughs> okay. Listening to Jason and, and hearing him Jason Parker, that is not Jason Thank you. Yeah, we might
1: need to be clear here.
2: Uh, JP. Could we call him JP? I think he likes that. So listening to J.P.
1: He probably likes that as much as you like being called Josh.
2: <sighs> okay, so listening to Jason Parker and hearing him talk about the, you know, the little spigot coming out of, out of the spirit safe. Mm-hmm. And you know, the tradition was, it's called a spirit safe. And the safe is meant to lock people out so that, you know, the spirit is kept safe and and people aren't stealing. However, you know, I'm trying to think of all the various, you know, the various distilleries we've gone to in Scotland where, yes, the bar is there. Yes, the padlock is there. But the padlock isn't often locked. And I'm seeing more and more. and, And this is in a way to... Not to say Jason is wrong because I don't think he's wrong. The common practice is to just let the spirit flow as they would and let the you know big distilleries just let the computers make the, the, the cuts as they will. But I've been seeing more and more doing these distillery tours and they will say, hey, do you want to taste the spirit? And they'll open it up and they'll give people a little bit of a taste. So you get to see that a bit more. Whether they're actually using that to determine their cuts, I think Jason is spot on. Few, if any, are are doing that. But there is access to it where once they were all locked.
1: But you also have to figure we are on industry visits.
2: Oh, that's true.
1: And when we take our tour guests, our tour guests are also on industry visits. Yeah, that's true. If you pitch up to a distillery on a five-pound tour... You're not even getting to stand next to the
2: spirit safe.
1: Okay. Yeah. Let alone. Yeah. Oh, you are we dram? Are we dram for you? Okay, but
2: but but my point stands that that lock <laughs> is not locked. It's it, rarely locked. See if your distillery is owned by Diageo.
1: That bar is in place. That padlock is locked, <laughs> and one person has a key. I will okay, make that crystal so, clear right so now. So
2: I've got nothing to stand by. And if
1: you're on an industry visit. It is still the bars in place. The padlock is locked tight. Right. Fair enough. Yeah, we okay. we have some very good friends in the industry uh, who help us out a little bit. So
0: right.
1: yes, okay. So Fair I, I thoroughly Fair enjoyed the, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed debunking your aside there. So that was a ton of fun. <laughs> a
2: ton of fun. Um, wow, I just I feel like you know that's total industry privilege.
1: <laughs> That's why I was saying be careful how many cats you let out of the bag And then you were like, no, it happens everywhere Everywhere we go Yeah, they line us up They roll us in We drink straight from the spirit safe Da da No, Joshua, no You are speaking completely out of school
2: here <sighs> All right, well The listeners <sighs> well, will have fun listening to that
1: We'll see how much of that makes it through the editing mm, maybe process Maybe all of it,
2: Yep. So So,
1: so, so with with New Make and a, and a very specifically designed new make mm. coming through those stills. One of the things that that I'd been talking with Jason about early in the process, early in the early in the walkabout mm-hmm. uh, as we'd had it, our conversation kept jumping ahead to maturation. We couldn't yeah. help ourselves. We ended up talking about how that fits with wood, yeah, how that fits with wood, and where that goes, and what they're watching. And they're a young distillery using fifty-three gallon. Casks, and so, what are the implications of that? One of the things that that I say I said many times to Jason, and and it's worth repeating here, even as it's appearing uh, in the conversation with him, is they really had a plan before they opened their doors. And I know that might sound a bit silly to people, mm. but it's it's notable for me that they were thinking way into the future they were really going beyond doors open and lights on they really wanted to know what are we doing as a distillery yeah and and what will our product be like and it's hard to really know that when you've got your new make spirit you've got it into wood you're still sitting there patiently you're still thinking okay what's this going to do with yeah. this number of months What's it going to do at this number of years? Where is this going? And you're constantly producing as you're constantly learning about your own spirit and your own maturation. And that, I have no skin in the game and it scares the bejeezus out of me.
2: Well, uh, let me just add to that. It's got to scare them too because one one point that that Jason had brought up Was, you know, when you go through your, you know, your fermenting and distiller's handbook that he got from, you know, the school in Edinburgh. What was the name of that school again? Harriet Watt. Harriet Watt. The school tells you what has been done. Mm -hmm. It doesn't talk about what has not been done. Mm -hmm. And they are carving their own path with, you know, whiskey has been create create a, a, a barley beer distil it. No, they're creating a craft ale and distilling that and fermenting it. Everything they're doing is different. So there's no guidebook to say, if you do X, Y, and Z, you will get such and such result. The problem is they're working from a different alphabet. And in this is why And and, and Jason will talk about it in in the next clip. This is why when when we start talking about maturation, Mm
0: -hmm. they're
2: filling these casks at different ABVs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? Um, I'm glad you bring that up. Yeah. And just to see what's going to happen. They know what they want to happen, but it's all a guessing game. So they need to figure out how to make what they want. Happen, And it will be interesting as they evolve, as they grow, to see if what they wanted to happen evolves or changes based on the results that they're getting from these various experiments they're doing during the maturation.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, let, let's, uh, let's listen to Jason Parker add more onto that.
2: All right. What do they call that? You putting leaves on the branch? Leaves on the branch, and branches on the tree flesh on the bone hit the button
1: and when you were putting the new make spirit into your 53 gallon barrels did you have an idea how how long you would age it no okay
3: no we we, we had an idea that we would sell it when it tasted good and we really didn't know when that would be mm-hmm. when we uh released our first whiskey at two and a half years i was very happy with it but the next whiskey we released at three years, we were even more happy, yeah. so we've never done uh, that going back to the to that last years. W- let's go back and talk about barrels, and I'll talk about some of the numbers that we don't want to hit.
1: Okay. And by Perfect. the way, I'll, I'll try to mention these sherry-casts.
3: <laughs> Did
1: you do all your warehousing here?
3: Yeah. Okay. But that can't ha- last long. Yeah. So <laughs> when they start up here in every corner and nook and cranny. And- Um, Let's see here. We're going to have a lot of fan noise back in there. So, you know, what we can do is kind of take a look here. Um, This is the entirety of it. It's like 350 barrels of whiskey, and that's it. Um, The ones that are still in in, in, uh, plastic are, of course, brand new, but all the rest are... You're not doing the Diageo experiment here? (laughs) Keeping the angel's share inside? Yeah, no, that's a whole whole idea. Um, (laughs) I, I will throw a little bit of the science to you about Please. why we are doing a, um, you, you notice that our temperature now is 73 degrees, 49% humidity. In most warehouses, they're optimized for the removal and addition. They were optimized for the two of the three things that happen in the barrel. So the barrel cycling through temperature is, is a really big story and, uh, and I believe that it is sort of more an important factor. It also is uh, easy to hide the bigger story, which is it's damn expensive to heat a warehouse and mm-hmm. cool a warehouse. And if you're building warehouses with literally a million barrels in them, there's no way you can afford to do that and hit your price point. So, so you don't, and then you, you have a really great story about why it's important to have temperature cycles. And that is true. Temperature cycles help optimize the removal through the charcoal layer and the addition of vanillas and caramels as you probably know the most important thing going on in a barrel is oxidation and esterification, right so what influences oxidation is uh, humidity okay. so they yeah. as you have a drier humid uh, a drier environment then more water is coming out of the barrel mm-hmm. and leaving more alcohol behind and that uh, uh, air that gets back into the barrel through the same seams that the uh, water came out will allow um, more interactions with alcohol and aldehydes. Reversely, if you have a lot of water surrounding the barrel, then you're going to end up with more alcohol coming out and your proof of lower like it does in Scotland. And that's going to even need a little bit longer for those interactions of esters because esterification, the second phase, so after oxidation things turn into acids and then acids bump into alcohols and form esters. So whiskey esters are the things that taste mature. You know, dried fruit, tobacco, leather, dark chocolate, those things. The way those things are generated is through interactions with acids and alcohols. And you have to decide what are you trying to accomplish in the barrel. If you're trying to clean up sour flavors, then you need whiskey to move through the char. You need some char, and you need it to move through the char. If you don't have sour flavors, because you didn't do a sour mash, and you didn't ferment all the sugar out, so therefore you're not looking for the barrel to be the sole contributor of sugars, Mm -hmm. then you actually need in our opinion, to optimize for the third thing, that, opti- that esterification. Well, esterification, that process of maturing, cuts in half every 10 degrees centigrade you drop below room temperature. Mm-hmm. So in the wintertime, whiskey isn't actually maturing. Yeah. It's flavoring, it's coloring, but it is not maturing. Uh-huh. We don't have a winter. We keep it 70 or above in here year-round, huh? and it's uh, generally between 35 and 60% humidity, so you know, floating around the 50%, I says 49 today. So, what's neat about that with 850 cubic feet of air a minute moving through here, pulling this air, this doesn't smell like a warehouse. Yeah. It doesn't have that heady alcohol thing, right? That yeah. means that we have the maximum amount of oxygen around that barrel, of fresh air around that barrel. We're literally getting a 7% angel share. We're using standard barrels, I mean, they have a lighter char, but standard barrels, and yet we're getting a seven percent angel share and Scotland and Kentucky are getting a two and a half to three percent that's because of all this air moving so that that means that what's happening and what we believe is the flavors we're getting is that that esterification is happening way faster okay <clears throat> excuse me so all of that to say that our first two barrels of whiskey barrel number one barrel number two we keep we're tasting barrel number two. Barrel number one, we've never opened. But barrel number two, we're, we're keeping, uh, tasting regularly. It's now just over four years old and is over-oaked. It's got too much barrel character in it. Wow. That is... The way we're doing our ferment, the way we're doing our distillate, the cuts we're making and the entry proof into the barrels and the toast and char of the barrels. By the way, we only use now two-year seasoned oak. We started with a year and a half and two-year. Everything is now two-year seasoned oak. Um, So, you know, it's kind of like a wine barrel with a long toast. And then we've been moving down in char from a number three to a number two to a number one. We're probably going to go back to a two. We find that between two and three is um, better for um, a three-year whiskey. Okay. But we're going to taste today some whiskeys that were in a number one char. We use both Independent Stave Company and Kelvin Cooperage. Independent Stave, of course, you know, all based in science, um, very consistent barrel-to-barrel. Barrel. Kelvin Cooperage, all based in craft. Uh, everything they do there is, you know, with guys with a garden hose and a barrel on fire. But they're, they're hearing the crackle, they're yeah. seeing the color, they're smelling the smoke, they see how it's burning. They, in my opinion, make the best barrels sometimes, (laughs) but not consistently. So I think their barrels, their best barrels will beat an independent state best barrel, but their worst barrels are way worse than the average independent state. So we use both, about Uh 50-50. Wow. We're um, now bringing on Canton. Uh, So we're doing three-year-age staves with them. Canton is really nice. They're a French company, but they um, sell here is that they do really great all the way down to the individual forest tracking. So we're all about moving towards um, you know, single farms, single varieties, single vintage malts, treating, treating whiskey with a terroir and a vintage. And being able to do that with the barrel uh, canton will help us achieve that. Independent Stave and Kelvin aren't um, delivering that yet. Okay. They might.
1: It's interesting listening to you. That you you and Micah seem very influenced and inspired by Scottish traditions and Absolutely. single malt style. Absolutely. But you've got at each step you've got your own wrinkle in it. That's right. You've got your own way of doing it. And now that we come to wood, the fact that you're using the new chart. Yeah. Um, much more in my mind, you know, the Kentucky tradition. Yeah, yeah. yeah tradition, right, right. Are are you also Putting your, um, I'm trying to think of how to say this in American <laughs> usage. Are you putting your new char used barrels back into rotation? Yes.
3: Okay. Yeah. We, so we're going to do them um, for one more time. So part of the reason that we're buying new barrels, so the, a, a very uh, economical way to have started this is by to use use bourbon barrels. All uh-huh. right. Yeah. So let's think about bourbon barrels. First of all, they they have no season. They're they're all um, for. Every one of them, except for a big deal when they do something, that's seasoned oak, and they'll put it on the label and charge you three times for the bottle, are uh, kiln dried. Secondly is they don't do a toast. They only do a char, and they get a red layer, a little bit of toast behind the char, and that's because it's a one-and-done barrel for them. Mm -hmm. They're not planning on using it again. They can't, so they sell it. The Scots aren't really looking for extra barrel flavor. They're fine to use. um, They need the char because they do need some of that cleaning, but they're fine to just let that malt be a significant part of flavor, and they're going to get some sweetness yeah. out. If not just from the in-drink, the bourbon that's in the wood, they're also going to get it from the, the oak. Mm-hmm. Of the, you know, for the well, what they call the first fill, but of course, what actually is the second fill. We're doing, yeah, I I was talking to a Scotsman one time, and I said, why do you call it a first fill? And he goes, well, because we don't consider bourbon whiskey. It's actually barrel flavor. (laughs) He's
1: not wrong. (laughs) No, no, no. Bourbon's wonderful.
3: (laughs) Well, growing up in Kentucky, I do have a a spot for that sweet character that comes through from a bourbon barrel, but... we are not making anything like the oily distillate that is bourbon. You know, that's mm. first um, column distilled and then uh, pot distilled. So, so there's uh, an interest in us in I think some of our best whiskies. I, I think, but I don't know. I think some of our best whiskies will probably be coming from our second fill. Right. right. So what we're doing right now is everything is being released as first because we had no choice Mm -hmm. and then when we're refilling that whiskey we'll see how long it can stay in there it might be five years six years now remember at a seven percent angel share we're getting a hell of a lot more oxidation esterification yeah so we could end up with uh you know it being closer to a four and a half year whiskey we don't know yeah we're very transparent, so we're always putting the we literally put it in the months because years at this point, uh, you know, decimal places on years seem weird. So we just put it in the months that we mature. Um, and then online we put a PDF out that has five to three to five pages of everything. You know, what the grain bill is, what the cooperage is, what the cuts were, oh, how long you know, what type of wood and char toast. Okay. So we're we're um, we're we're doing this because I I think that we need to counter the current market belief is that the older the whiskey, the better the whiskey. And that's that was great marketing when there was a lot of old whiskey. Yeah. And we know that, uh, but, but most consumers don't know that all whiskey other than a single cask release is literally a blend of several barrels. Could be thousands, yep, but at least hundreds or tens. Yep. So when we're blending four to six barrels, which is our batch size, we're not capable of making a consistent whiskey. And because we have those two grain bills entered in two different cooperages at four different entry proofs and then we also have these sherry casks and cognac barrels, etc. We're nowhere close to making a consistent whiskey. And we're happily sharing all the details online so customers can kind of follow along and give us feedback and and tell us what they like.
1: No, I I think that's smart and I think it's part of what Joshua and I are encountering when we're to speaking to whether somebody wants to be known as a craft distiller mm-hmm. or a small distiller, mm-hmm. or whatever the mm-hmm. terminology is, but somebody who's not a clear, you know, multinational corporation. Right.
3: right, right, right.
1: Uh, speaking to to those distillers, it behooves them to be interesting, unique,
3: and transparent.
1: Transparent, and. And show a different side of the industry. Yeah. And tell tell stories that weren't thought up in a marketing boardroom right. but that were part of the process. Right. Part of production. Um I think that's really what whiskey geeks are looking for. Yeah. And whiskey geeks will support you, you know. Through the good times and the bad times. That's right. That's right. Um, If if you treat them right and you treat them with respect, right, and that's everything that I'm hearing uh, with you and your story and online, Um, and they can see PDFs at copperworks.com.
3: Yes, uh, if you go under products and then whiskey, each release, uh, even if it's sold out, and of course our releases do sell out quickly because there are only fourteen, fifteen hundred bottles, um, but you can read back the history of all of them. So you're, you're right, and what's kind of interesting, small distilleries, craft distilleries like Copperworks, really have two things. We have innovation. We, we can run circles around the big guys. We can innovate in small um, units and actually um, succeed from that instead of being you know, all skunk work. And we have a true story. We don't need a marketing department. All we have to do is tell what we do. So that's why, and, and again, I always advise small distillers who are interested in opening, have a philosophy of flavor. Know what you're going to do and why you want to do it. And that usually means reading a ton of books and then deciding what's wrong about all of those books. What did they assume? Yeah. And like I say, books don't tell you how to do something that you want to do. They tell you what's been done to make the things that are already out there. So you have to you have to learn what, what they don't
2: know and then explore it. Jason, I feel as if, and I think you may be feeling the same, I feel as if we've run through the process, right? See what I did there? I said process because I wanted to, to bro down with you. Um, <laughs> I felt American. very
1: comfortable when you said that.
2: <laughs> Americans will know it's actually pronounced process. We, we've run through their fermentation, their distillation, their maturation, right? Now we have a product or products, mm-hmm. and you guys started tasting through some of those whiskeys, and actually a good part of the conversation was, let's taste release 11. Let's taste, re-, you know, <laughs> tasting every release that they've ever done, but... But Jason was a gracious host. (laughs) (laughs) But before you did that, and this calls back to what we were saying earlier in the podcast, is you and Jason Parker started discussing your thoughts or his thoughts on the arc of the industry, on the arc that it's taking. And obviously we want to let Jason talk. But I'm curious, you know, having had that conversation personally, having had a chance to think about it, afterward if if there was anything else you wanted to say before we moved it over to Jason.
1: Not a question I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> This would have been covered in our preparation talk.
2: <laughs> and now here we are. Preparation h Hatton um, that is. May-
1: maybe maybe just aside from from the industry component of it, I would definitely say that when your copper works, with your 53-gallon cask maturation. And you're working out what each release is going to be. And and Mm. releases are selling out lickety-split. Support in Seattle and beyond is tremendous. love it. Love it. One of the things, and and we certainly have this of single-cast nation, we're always looking for the best story to tell. Uh, And this is something that I said a lot uh, the other week in New Orleans, is. None of the stories we're telling are marketing stories. I'm, I'm not trying to create a character in mythology and, and hang no. this whiskey around the neck of that or, you know, river nymphs or, or what have you, you know. So when, when I say story, what I'm trying to communicate is here's something that I think you should know about a distillery. Here's mm. something I think you should know about the people who who work at that distillery. Yeah, Yep. Here's where this release from this distillery fits in with a previous release from that distillery. And so when I spent time with Jason Parker, that's what he and I were discussing. And and as you pointed out a moment ago, when you've got release three and release six and release 11, (laughs) and and each one is telling a different story. Mm -hmm. I think the one thing for Copperworks and, and out of my conversation with Jason is how do you tell... Uh, a comver- How do you tell a story that makes up a single book with multiple chapters?
2: Yeah, yeah. And so
1: they're, they're still releasing chapter after chapter that has to have a copperworks thread running through the entire novel. Yeah. And it, yeah. Was, it was interesting for me as an independent bottler to see that given that they're dealing with batches, given that they're dealing with bringing multiple casks together, mm-hmm. they have to be cognizant of what story have we told up to now, what story are we going to tell here, and what story are we going to tell in the future. Yeah, And and I, I loved, loved hearing that. And I, I know the struggle is real. It's exactly our position. Um, it's also a fun place to be. Mm-hmm. You can have a ton of fun telling that story. But I wonder... As a distiller, do you after a while and I'm thinking about Brooke Laddie here, do you have to stop talking about multiple chapters and have to start talking about, you know, the same novel?
2: Well, I think you definitely do. And Brook aside, I'll use the example of English Whiskey Company, hmm. right? You're using the exact terminology that they had, where they had chapters one through 12 I, I'm not sure if it went beyond that. But I think that that whole chapter series, at least from my perspective, I found it quite interesting. I, I think it did a good job of of taking people along a bit of a journey. And then they finally ended that journey. And now they have some standard product lines. I think Karen, right? Glenn yes. Distillery did the same, that work in work progress. In progress. Yep. And then they got to an 8-year-old and then they got to a 12-year-old. And who else? Kilhoman did their spring of 2010, summer of 2010. So you got to – I think it's important for a new distillery to figure out a way to keep people interested, to keep them invested in the brand so, that, so they don't get bored of it. But, but you're right. You could get to a point where you're, you're just uh, – what's, what's the word I'm thinking of? Overwhelmed, numbed fatigued you're fatigued by this constant okay it's another new one you know when you're going to have a core product but But let me yeah
1: let me throw another example at you as somebody who has embraced that other side of the coin yeah is mad scientist trent tilton at san diego distillery Mm -hmm. and he wants to be known as somebody who continually has yeah, that's a, good a new expression? Yeah, who has now done something else unexpected with barley and different types of barley, God, and yep. and continually wants to push the envelope and be known as somebody who's more like a craft brewer, where instead of having a standard line, you have your your releases that fit the seasons, and. You know, you drink a stout in the fall, so let's distill something from stout. You drink IPA in the spring, let's distill something from IPA, use Yeah. yeah. And so there's somebody who's embracing it and not trying to get away from it. And
2: he's nailing it. He's nailing he's it doing fantastic
1: with that. So to me, that's kind of the the beauty of the industry, is you can go down the Brookladdy path so far, the English whiskey company path so far, and then say, okay, maybe we need some standards. You can be in the, the Copperworks place right now where you're saying, We're, we just want to show you as many sides to our distillery as possible. Yeah. Get to know our distillery and maybe we'll end up with a standard line or maybe we'll embrace this. And then you get Trent who says, I'm not even heading towards a standard line. I'm only going to embrace this.
2: Right. But, but that leads me to a concern where he's what Trent is doing he's nailing it regionally right he's got california drinking his stuff he can't keep up with orders right great, great problem to have he's also in nevada now as well i don't know if he's broken into another market but back in march when we were talking to him he was excited because he was just breaking into nevada my concern is once you start breaking into more and more and more markets, the pushback from other markets could be difficult if you're trying to get in there. Right? Mm. If you think about a retail shop, there's something nice about having to always be selling Maker's Mark, Maker's Mark Forty Six, <laughs> Glenn Morangy Eighteen Year Old, Glenlivet Twelve Year Old. Right? Because they know it's going to go on the shelf and it's going to come off the shelf. Mm-hmm. And they have something that they can set their watch to. Correct. In, in a manner of speaking. But if you are always doing something new, something different, and the old stuff hasn't moved yet, then it presents a problem. So, f- small picture, Trent is nailing it, and he may be 100% happy with what he's doing. I, I'm. If he wants to grow, if anybody wants to grow, I, I just think getting to a core product, there's a reason why you see Scottish distilleries doing that. There's a reason why you saw uh, Westland do it. There's a reason why you saw um, Catoctin Creek and, and and so many other craft producers have gotten to a core that they're looking to sell because it's just a bit easier. And you know what? Maybe they don't want that ease. Maybe they... Are happy doing what they're doing.
1: And that's the thing for me. That's why I enjoy watching the industry as closely as you and I do, is to see who thinks their philosophy will will be the winner. Mm-hmm. Um so 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 we've we've lax <laughs> lyrical a little bit. We always do this, we just kind of get into it, we get kind of a little enthusiastic and yeah. away we go. Let's let's pivot back to Mr. Jason Parker. And because w- yeah. he he for me is is an industry leader and he helps teach classes. Uh, in the Seattle area. Yeah. He's absolutely fascinating. Uh, Christopher Grombeck, our good friend at Barrel Thief, yeah. uh, co hosts classes with Jason Parker. Oh, nice. And they are very well attended and people learn a ton of things. Okay. And so let's listen to why I consider Jason Parker an industry leader.
3: But yeah, what's your key message that you need to get across? We, we One of the really big ones is that we're brewers, right? Because everything that we've done philosophically has sprung from the fact that we're using malt, with all of our background and experience of using malt, and believing in all the malt flavors, and then trying to express them into whiskey. So the first and most important one is that we're brewers. The second one is that we're actually following a lot of traditions. So we actually do a very high quality beer, we do a very traditional Scottish distillation, and sort of using new charred American oak barrels like bourbon, but with some science behind it in the warehousing. Um, that we're 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 based in tradition, but innovating around them, and then really the third one is one that is emerging as we're making more and more investment into we're treating malt as a uh, terroir, not as a commodity. Mm-hmm. Right. So malt, as you already discussed in Scotland, is absolutely a commodity product. In America, it is too. Um, that that. Even brewers, even brewers treat base malt as a commodity. So when I go, I do a lot of lectures, and I always start the slide with malt is the new hop. And brewers get it. They get the fact that hops used to just be bitter units. And now hops are the things that make or break a brewery. If they can get their hands on, you know, citra before anybody else does, and they can make this type of flavor. So people don't ask for a hoppy beer. They ask for a beer by its characters. I want it floral. I want it um, grapefruity. I want it, you know, whatever word is that type of hop. But they don't do that with malt yet. They do it in session beers in England. They talk about the flavors of the malt. Mm-hmm. We... Whiskey is the perfect place to express that. It's even stronger. It's even more of a flavor. So that's the third thing that we're really talking about now, is that malt is (laughs) the new hop. But for whiskey, malt is the feature. Barrel is not the feature. Barrel is what makes malt express itself. That's good. So all the way back to your um, uh, discussion about distilling... um, for a younger product, or actually manufacturing for a younger product. That's one of the things that, um, you know, we're already exploring some of that with the good beer. The next one will be, um, really, as we're now learning uh, so much about the barrels, will be to play around with our cuts. We haven't done that because you can't change too many variables and have anything consistent uh, learning from it. But this is, uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun with that. And that's gonna inform us for these individual whiskey, uh, uh, I'm sorry, malt varieties and vintages. So so expanding beyond that,
1: what do you, what do you see as the, the future for, uh, I'm gonna call it American craft distilling, mm-hmm. uh, and that's gonna be a, a wide brush that tars mm-hmm. yes, a sure. lot. And mm-hmm. um, w- I feel very fortunate that I've been in the United States since the very beginning of this movement. Mm-hmm. There were mm-hmm. maybe three or four or five distillers from the 90s right. who, who I missed. Right. But if we're now up to, and depending on who you speak to, you get a different estimate, but somewhere around 1,500 distilleries yeah, that's right. across the United yeah, States. Yeah, 1,500
3: operating and maybe another 500 in process. process. That's mm-hmm. that's mental numbers. That's right. um, one of the things in my mind when I watched it
1: happen was the, there was the big boom. There was a lot of um, money being invested in it and I, and i i kind of thought to myself that this will be a meritocracy when you come out the gate yeah you've got a story you've got a distillery you've got ideas uh-huh. you can you can put together a business plan somebody will come along and want to support you in that they'll mm-hmm. believe in you can this can this industry work with 1500 or 2000 distilleries um, Will we see a falling away? Will we see a sharpening of, of the, mm-hmm. well, I mean meritocracy, mm-hmm. the very well done mm-hmm. distillers? Mm-hmm. Will they separate from the rest? Like, what do you see as a,
3: as a man who's deeply entrenched in it? Uh, what do you see as the future for American craft distillers? You remember my background was starting as a brewer. Uh, 1989, and when we opened Pike Place, there were about 200 breweries in America. There's now 6,600. So, but by the way, when we um, uh, incorporated copperworks—not when we opened, but when we incorporated copperworks—there were about 200 distilleries in America. There's now, as you said, you know, just under 2,000, about 1,500 operational. I believe it's running the same gauntlet. Um, what happens is. A, anybody can open it first in their region and everybody supports them because they're proud of it and it sounds great it sounds like it's making jobs it sounds like it's using a lot of raw materials from the local um, that of course isn't really true it's just a couple of small family people working their butts off <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but what um, what is different so back to the beer and in the, in the beer world There were the big industrial beers that were shipped all around the world and made consistently, so therefore kind of the lowest common flavor denominator so that they could be consistent across the world. Um, Local beer came and showed that you can have a whole new flavor, and the closer to local you are, the fresher and better that is. Distill it didn't have the same boogeyman to go... Fix. Um There were really world-class distilleries out there all around the world and importing everywhere making incredible product. What's different is they they are now literally mired in their own tradition. They can't innovate. I'm going to say the Scots can't innovate. The Japanese can innovate just slightly with wood. Um, the Kentuckians and Tennesseans have legislated themselves into a hole they can't in- innovate at all. There is no innovation left. So where it's uh, so, back to the 1,500 small distilleries, that's all we can do. We can innovate and we can tell a true story. When we innovate, we need to be able to make enough money to keep the lights on and the, the one family fit. And I think it's going to be like brew pubs as laws change to allow distilleries to sell their own cocktails, just like a brew pub and a winery can do. That's what keeps the doors on in the distillery. And I I see that as a necessity um, for a lot of the mom-and-pop places to stay open. And I think it will always be then an opportunity. You can have a a 10-block radius that will keep you open. If those people come in, they buy food, and you're making your your booze, and you're selling it at drink prices, then your margins are good enough to stay open. Short of that, um, either direct uh, consumer shipping, or there's not much else uh, at that point. It's gonna you're gonna you know uh, do the distilling until the money's gone, okay. and then you go back to your day job. There then will be the um, out of what 1500 that we have now, just like in in. Uh, and, brewing. and, by the way, we're starting to see, I don't know if you saw today, the House Spirits uh, announcement that Diageo invested in them. I did not. Uh, so, you know, that's that Distilled Ventures. Yay for Kristen. Mm-hmm. It, it, he's worked so hard. And he's, of course, a brewer who's mm-hmm. become a distiller. Um, sold his brand aviation in order to really jump in full-fledged on the, the malt side. Built up a lot of barrels and now had a sellable product. And wow. Distilled Ventures came in and bought that. That's going to be the exit strategy for this successful exit because... We are the skunks works for the big guys. We are doing the thing with the philosophy and the following, the cachet, that they simply can't do. Okay. They can't do by law, they can't do by economies, and they can't do because, really, that's not the way they've been thinking for the past 150 years. Yeah. Yeah. So we get to we get to innovate for them, and if they own part of that, then they get everything they get the innovation they can steal the stories they can take the ideas that are good they can buy it if it's successful or they can close it if if that's not a good direction to go that's what happened in brewing you know brewing got bigger and bigger and then bigger investors came in and of course now um, the big guys are trying to catch up yeah I I think um, I think we still have headroom but we need a couple of things to change. We need the uh, d- uh, director consumer shipping. We need the ability to do cocktails in America, not just every, not just one or two states, but all over. And I think that will be very competitive for the startups, and the startups are where the new big distilleries will come from. I mean, that's where the innovation. Brandy is the one, in my opinion, that Washington State is missing out on. We should be the brandy producer of the world, and we have all the fruit. Grow the best apples and best apricots, and amazing grapes, and yet we have virtually no brandy distilleries. Three or four, all making great stuff, but no distribution and no market penetration. So, in twenty years from now, if I if I was a betting man, I would bet on brandy. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Um, we'll store that away, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, malt whiskey is what I know. I don't know anything yeah, from, yeah. from Adam. Uh-huh. So, Mike um, well, M- <laughs> and I are, are are brewers. So we're gonna do we're gonna do malt whiskey, and I think um, in about five years we'll see thousands of brewers becoming distillers. They're still gonna be brewers. Uh-huh. But they're gonna start opening distilleries. And they're gonna do it for two reasons. One is because the brewing industry is tanking and they're trying to figure out how to become, um, you know, what's the next thing to do. They've done everything they can think of, every type of hop, every someday every type of ball, and flavored the hell out of beers, soured them, done them in barrels. They've done everything you can do to beer. And the market, about as big as it's going to get. So the next thing we got to figure out is what next and distillings where they all have their eyes. Because it's still growing. Some of them moved to cider, another great area. But between, um, I I, I really think that a lot of brewers are going to become distillers. Because of people like Westland, Stranahan's, Copperworks, and other brewers, uh, of course, House Spirits, who have made American single malt whiskey. And started from a beer yeah. that they're going to say, look, there's a pathway to success. So we'll probably see a couple of hundred of those succeed. Okay. And they'll end up being regional, mm-hmm. but probably never. Uh, not say never, but okay. they will be as successful nationally as the national breweries are successfully. So like gotcha. it used to be when I was at Pyramid, I was a brewmaster at Pyramid for seven years when we were there we could do amazing stuff in any state now it's hard to even be relevant in your own state wow so I think the same thing will happen in spirits it will be regional and that's why it's so important to invest in Deroar be the company that has got those experiences and contracts with farmers so you get the best that the region has to offer yeah no that's that's fantastic i i thoroughly
1: appreciate that answer i have to thank jason so much for his generous time his generous pours uh and his his generous camaraderie mm-hmm. it was an absolute blast spending that much time with him and it's one of those moments when i looked at my watch because i'm always conscious i'm in someone's distillery they've probably got some other work they could be doing <laughs> yeah and and um, and i looked at my watch and i I've been here 3 hours. Yeah. <laughs> like, are, are we okay for time? Yeah. He was like, yeah, yeah, we're we're good. We're I'm enjoying That's it. Amazing. Let's, let's keep going. So, yeah, it, it was tremendous and he's he's always been a, a good interview. Yeah, at, at Whiskey Jubilee Seattle as well. And it was it was after that that I said to him, we have to get by the distillery. I have to see it. I have to, you know, interview you about it. And we have to have a deeper conversation. And so this may end up being another one of our long episodes. Uh, general listener feedback is, keep them coming. Yep. Um, I'm happy with the length of them. You get me through plane journeys. You get me through long car rides. Uh, you even get me through my weekly commute. So, I, I, so okay, I'm, I'm listening to that. I'm going to yeah. try and be less nervous about long. I've always been so nervous about that. Well, again, just because I'm conscious of time, right? I'm conscious of people's time. And if we say, we are worth two hours of your time, I'm not sure I agree.
2: <laughs> you know what, Jason? Time is on your side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I should add, we will come back
1: to Jason later in the episode. <laughs> um, I made sure to record a misconception with him.
2: Okay. Yeah, good. And that's the one, you know, in, in, again, in, in an effort to bro down with you seeing as you didn't listen to the misconception for from the last episode, <laughs> uh, I decided not to listen to this one because nope. it seems like something that that we do now. <laughs> um, you set a precedence, and, and so I want to stick with that.
1: Precedent. We set a precedent. You don't set a precedence.
2: Did I say precedence? You did. I'm having a tough time with words today, Jason. Mm, you yeah. know, same shit, different day. So I'm going to... Even though I'm having a tough time with words, here's here's what I'm gonna say. We're we're not gonna read emails today. And <laughs> do, you, do you have
1: something else to cover that's kind of like people reaching out to you, but not quite an email? <laughs> I do.
2: Oh, you do. Uh, and, and we're and we're gonna forego news, though. Though let me let me let me say one one bit of news. Um, it's gonna be quick, really quick. More of the gonna, podcast. Was that? Word of the podcast. Quick. <laughs> yes. Um, so quick. Cool whip. <laughs> so the bit of news. Oh, hey, Paperboy, get your ass up and talk. Extra,
0: extra. Read all about it. Life story of Playboy. It's <laughs> Extra Extra, extra. Extra, extra. Read all about it. Me and that Playboy
2: in trouble again. All right. So one, one bit of quick news. Last episode, we teased about our uh, t- early 2019 releases that we had some that were being bottled and labeled and going to mm. be coming over, and we didn't want to specify. We said, oh, let, let's you know, let's talk about that for another episode." But I, I just I want to bring up one because we received some pictures. Mm -hmm. From our bottling hall, And I posted these pictures up on our Facebook page. Oh,
1: cool. I've got it on my phone showing the listeners right now.
2: (laughs) Uh, But one of the releases, and this is something that we've never done before. Never done it. Pretty damn excited about it. We've bottled a 12-year-old single sherry cask blended malt from Edrington Distilleries. We've never done a blended malt before, have we?
1: We haven't. I hate having to use the term blended instead of vatted.
2: I know, it really should be vatted, but it's such a better word. Just like the word craft, right? Such a better word. Craft to whiskey sounds negative. Blended to whiskey, well, thanks be to people like Compass Box, sounds less negative than it used to be but uh still vatted is is really the the better term
1: vatted is just such a tight word blended i now imagine consumers thinking oh that's the stuff with grain in it mhm uh, no it's a blended malt because oh, they... so, so it's grain and malt right because no it's a vatted yes. malt it's all malt all the time because oh.
2: people are going to stop at the word they hear blended and that's yeah. it you don't 100%. hear blended malt 100% Scotch whiskey
1: yep, yeah. yep yep and, and you know even monkey shoulder who's selling fantastically well in the u s
2: blended malt mm-hmm
1: right why, why we can't call that a vatted malt makes me makes my hair go a little white Joshua
2: all oh, right oh look at you appropriating the uh the hair of the elderly <laughs> <laughs>
1: so so anyway, so you've you've been getting ahead of the story you've been putting our blended slash vatted yeah. uh, well
2: yeah I want imagine heavily there. sherried first fill sherry. Heavily sherry, first fill sherry, really rich, really chocolatey, a a hint of smoke in there, but it's the tiniest hint. It's more just a facet rather than smoke. And it's just delectable. We're really excited about it. It's a real small outturn, though. So it was a full size, you know, a sherry hogshead. So it should get you around 300 ish bottles at 12 years old. Uh, but we got like a hundred and fifty odd something. It was a short cask, uh, so it must have been a leaker. But sometimes leakers are a good thing, hmm. right? Hmm. So
1: hmm. Ah, that is a small It
2: It is right. It's similar to our Ben Nevis twenty year old from a sherry punchin, like sherry punchin at twenty years old. A punchin's the yeah. same size as a butt. Should get you the vicinity of five hundred ish bottles. We got three hundred ish bottles, hmm. okay. so yeah, short cask, and we have found short casks to be pretty damn tasty. So,
1: and so the yeah. uh, the blended malt single
2: cask will be online release. It'll be an online release, yes, in twenty nineteen. In twenty nineteen, yes, it was only bottled. I'm sorry, it was only labeled yesterday, so hopefully, it'll get on a boat in in a couple of weeks. And, yeah, it, it, it'll be for early 2019.
1: Shipping in the new year when it's still cold and people are still buying scotch.
2: Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. All right. So enough with the news. I'm going to reignite a segment that we like to call Grind My Gears. You know what really grinds my gears? Nobody's come up with a new priest and a rabbi joke in like 30 years, you know? Jason who is still in the room and has not
1: disappeared to his kitchen to make a pot of tea while Joshua has his gears <laughs>
2: ground. I did something yesterday that I so rarely, rarely if ever do. And and I caught a bit of what I would say unfair shit for doing it. Okay. All right. <laughs> so Here's the situation. My parents went away on a week's vacation. They came into the keys to their brand new Porsche. Is it mine? Well, yeah, of course not. Uh, I I guarantee I got that a little wrong, and hopefully someone will email in to correct me on on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air's song. Anyway, (coughs) so, you know, Jason. None of those words are in the song. What are you talking about? It's not in the title track to the show. Oh. But it was a, it was a Will Smith a Will Smith uh, ditty. It was, oh, okay. it was a, gotcha. a rap song that made him big. Oh, yeah. I'm not as
1: up on Parents his work. Parents
2: just don't understand.
1: Oh, yes. Okay. That, that rings a bell. I'm just not as up on his work outside of the TV show Fresh Prince of Bel-Air.
2: This was his work from 30 years ago. So it's not like you have to be up on something so far in the past. Okay. There are listeners. Back to your gears. Yeah. Yeah. To okay. your back to your gears. Back to my gears being grounded. So, all right. So why am I bringing this up on the podcast? Well, because because <laughs> a lot of our a lot of our nation members listen to this podcast, and and I actually got a message from one of our nation members uh, about this. So a little while back, I had purchased two bottles of the Port Charlotte Heretic Bottling. So this is a Fajil bottling. Those that don't know what Fajil is, it's the Isla Festival. It's an annual festival. And for this more than a week-long festival, each distillery will release a special distillery-only bottling for the festival.
1: And the bottles are limited in number and high in demand. Always, Yeah, exactly,
2: exactly. Uh, In fact, The Heretic, this had 1,300 bottles total. And I was particularly excited about this because the way it was described to me was this is a Port Charlotte version of Black Arts, of Brook Black Arts which is one of my favorite releases, especially the very first release I thought was magnificent. And each one after that has always been interesting, always been fun. And I was so excited about this, too, because the previous year, the Port Charlotte Transparency bottling, I thought was the best Fageel bottling that that year. That, that was my favorite one by it far. So, terrific. Right?
1: Absolutely Terrific.
2: So here we are. We're on the heels of 2017. Here's the 2018 bottling, and people are saying this is the Port Charlotte version of Broccolati Black Arts. I got excited. I bought two bottles. And when you came to Connecticut with me, I thought, it's so rare you come up here. Why not open a bottle and share it with a good friend? My best friend. My bestest of friends. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so we popped open the bottle and it was one of many, but it was one that we we sipped on early because we were focused for the most part on Pete. And both you and I were disappointed with the whiskey. didn't Didn't find it to be offering up the flavors that we were looking for, that we were hoping for. And so my initial thought was, I'm going to buy two bottles. I'm going to open one and I'm going to save the other one for a special occasion. I did the same with Uh, the transparency last year I now have one bottle that I'm going to save for a special occasion Mm -hmm. and so I found myself now with two bottles of this whiskey one that is now open and one that I just don't want and so (laughs) I thought (laughs) so I thought why not sell this one but just sell it for my cost whatever I paid for it plus shipping because I'm not a flipper I have flipped bottles before. I have sold bottles before. You may have remembered when Angus, when my cat was on his deathbed, I needed I money did. immediately. You did, and I so I sold a bottle of twenty-one year old Willet. It was the weeded war- weeded Patriot. I sold it for less than its value. Oh, I. I needed X amount of money. I sold whiskey for the amount of money I needed to make sure my cat stayed alive. I wasn't looking to make extra money because I don't flip. I'm a whiskey drinker. So I did this. I took the port Charlotte, I put it up uh, on a place where bottles get sold, and I sold it for my cost plus shipping. Mm -hmm. And I hesitated for a second before I put it up because I said, are people going to interpret this as me being a flipper, especially when we as a company have a policy that says, please don't flip our bottles. And then I thought about the reasons for it. I bought two bottles, one to drink, one to save. I didn't like it, so I'm going to sell this one for cost not making a buck. So that's not flipping, and it has nothing to do with me buying a bottle to sell it for three, four, five times the amount that I originally got it. So I did not see a corollary. <laughs> Isn't that why we introduced that word earlier today? <laughs> you thought quick was word of the podcast. <laughs> um, but so someone took a screenshot of that and posted it on our Single Cast Nation Facebook page. As I gotcha. As a gotcha. Gotcha. You know, it would have been nice to reach out to me directly saying, whoa, what's happening here? And then i would f- more than happy to explain my position and, and, and why I did it and why I felt 100% comfortable doing it. But Even though you
1: did have a hesitation, even though you did consider yes, the optics.
2: Yes, I did. And you still
1: felt comfortable doing it.
2: Yes, And so someone posted this on our our Facebook page, and some people chimed in, you know, basically with uh, what the fox, and many, many... uh, What the fox, what the fox news, what the phone news, yeah. Uh, But so many other people came to my defense saying, whoa, this is totally different. He's selling it at cost plus shipping. It's And even I said this, it's different than trying to protect our members who want to drink while they see other people who have purchased the bottle instantly turn around and sell it for three, four, five times the amount. Mm-hmm. And what, what grinds my gears about this is I have – I've lived my entire life – my mother told me something when I was really young. And she said, you could spend – your entire life building a reputation and all it takes is one misstep to destroy everything you built. And I aim to be someone who has integrity and I feel as if my integrity has been questioned here. And I feel as if I've got to somehow police myself because of others perception of things that i'm doing and fuck if that grinds my gears
1: yeah and it's you know within the industry we are we are known commodities we you know it's not the same as being a celebrity you know not by a long shot but by people who are really into brown spirits mm-hmm. whiskies, and bourbons and rye's we're we're known commodities, and so when we take a stance as part of our company, mm-hmm. people are holding us to to oh, exacting yeah. standards. It, Unfortunately, exactly. when they see something that they think doesn't fit within those standards, they're very vocal about it. And in this case, selling it on at cost rather than flipping it um, was the the right thing to do. You know, someone else in the United States gets to experience that bottle now as if they had bought it at Fishiel, not as if they had bought it on the secondary market so. well
2: and, and so you're where I and just to be very clear here because I don't think I ever told you I purchased this bottle based on secondary prices I mean it was oh, it was I, it was, I didn't it was through, know that. yeah it was through auction oh. so yeah so I I paid an auction price oh, okay and sold it for my auction price I actually lost a bit of money because the cost to ship it from the UK auction to my house yeah. was, I don't know, 40-ish bucks, somewhere around there. So I actually lost a little bit of money, but I didn't want to inflate the overall price of it. So I, I just, you know, whatever the exact price it was I paid on auction, plus $10 shipping, um, is is what I did. And, and, and you're right, you know, people do... Because we are a known commodity and because we take a particular stance on flipping to protect our members, people are going to hold us to a different light. However, and this is why I hesitated. However, it would have been nice for people to reach out directly and with, with the call out. Instead than, of the gotcha. Yeah, uh, that instead seems of the fair, gotcha. But,
1: but I, I would also say, you know, as your mother had very wise words when you were a young chap about yeah. reputation, absolutely yeah. spot on. I think it was um, Abraham Lincoln who said, you can't please all the people all the time. I, I think he posted that on Twitter. Um <laughs> And, and even if it's apocryphal, it still stands true. You cannot please all the people all the time. Yeah. It's as simple as that. And so I can see why it grinds your gears. I can see why somebody thought they got you in a, in a gotcha. And um, you've explained yourself online. You've explained yourself in this podcast. It's going to wind you up through the rest of today and through the weekend. But something else will come along to get your attention very shortly so
2: yeah thankfully thankfully don't but worry it's, too much it you know in the end there very little grinds my gears it's when my integrity is questioned which 100%. rarely happens thankfully but it ha- it's happened a couple times in uh the past the past year and it's found it to be a bit upsetting cuz your standing is increasing that's why yeah <laughs> That's exactly why That's why I'm sitting down in this chair
1: <laughs> There <laughs> so you standing. go so, so, so we'll put that into the vault That goes in the Grind My Gears vault Yep uh, Thank you for sharing, listeners Thank you for listening uh, you, you mentioned a moment ago about people Simply reaching out to ask questions Do you want to remind the listeners How they reach out to us? Yes, yes and we'll and
2: So throw it yes. back to Jason Parker And we'll get on out of here so this is a bit of a caveat, and people have always heard this caveat, but I always mention the caveat at the end. I'm going to I'm going to uh, preload, I'm not, that's not the word, I can't think of words today. Pre-game, pre Yeah, I'm going to yeah, I'm gonna pre-game <laughs> with this. <out> <laughs> okay. okay, so I'm going to say this before rather than after, and you'll understand what I mean. So
1: you're going to be premature, go for it.
2: It checks out. Every bit of information that I have to give you, every time I mention the word whiskey, just know, dear listener, that whiskey is always spelled without the E. So if you want to get in touch with us, <laughs> you can email us questions at One Nation Under Whiskey. You can, uh, you can reach out to us on Facebook at our Facebook group. Go to Facebook.com, go to your app, go to the search bar, One Nation Under Whiskey. We've got a group there. Uh, please ask some questions there it would be great to hear from everybody uh, you can tweet at us if you'd like at one nation whiskey or you can instagram us tag us on instagram send us a message whatever you want to do at one nation under whiskey and that's really it those are those are the four ways in which we will accept communications
1: i also accept horses riding into the center of town Sounding out a message with a hoof on a concrete floor, yeah. And I will whisper the response into their ear, and they will return to their place of origin and deliver that message unto you.
2: As soon as you mentioned that, I got the, um, I got the the scene from History of the World Part One with Gregory Hines when he's doing the the tap dance on the on the sandy ground. Yes. A little sand on the stage for the native Shim Sham sand dance. Look out, I'm going to start. I'm going to insert that here, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) I, I should also
1: add, because we haven't made mention to it at all, which is absolutely not like us, that I've been sitting sipping on the Copperworks 11th release, uh, all through this podcast, and oh. I've been enjoying it thoroughly. It's one of the releases that has a little bit of hop presence to it.
2: Okay,
1: yeah, really, really delicious release. So, so I, I, you were you were guzzling Heretic straight from the bottle. Well,
2: yeah, and actually, so I decided to do a bottle chug of of Heretic, and and here it goes. I don't know if you can hear it.
0: Okay, stop, stop, stop. Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. Mistakes oh my were gosh. made.
2: 55.9%. Oh. <laughs> you know, the. it's interesting. The nose, well, I wasn't <laughs> able to nose it. I was only able to taste it. The palate is much better than the nose. That's what I remember. I just thought there wasn't much to the nose. Right? Yeah, and, and, palette and that present. was it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you know what? Other people may love it. And actually, I forgot to mention. No, I'm not going to mention here. Moving on. So do we so, we have a misconception, right? You mentioned that. Do we have a misconception? From, did that go straight to your head, that bottle chug? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Indubitably. <laughs> Indubitably, corollarily.
1: I will say we came, we saw, we spoke. Mm-hmm. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to Jason Parker on this episode. Yep. I thoroughly enjoyed having a conversation about Jason Parker and Copperworks with you on this episode, Joshua. Mm. And I thoroughly enjoyed our listeners listening along with us as Jason Parker told us a little bit about what they've got going on at Copperworks.
2: And I appreciate you going out there and, and spending all the time you did and conducting what I think was a really, really fine interview. Good questions, a good interviewee, but a really good interview. So so thank you for that.
1: Well, cheers, Jason. Made it very, very easy. We were just two chaps, wandering around a distillery, having a good conversation. I think I said this in a previous episode, um, as I was hinting at what lay in our future with mm. Copperworks. But I'll reiterate here, since people have come to it for the Copperworks focus. Um, as we were talking maturation, and Jason had said, Oh, that's something you should taste. And he started climbing through the barrels. Uh hmm. the, the, the the racks. And while he was above me, looking down and I was there with empty oh, right. glass in hand.
2: Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs>
1: that description didn't get any better. Uh, he looked down at me. Two guys, one glass? He looked down at me from on high. <laughs> oh, and That's he great.
2: said, what's going to happen? Do we need a
1: wawa pedal? <laughs> we might have an Easter egg, an Easter egg riding itself here, <laughs> uh, producing itself. He looked down and he said, Jason, you have a good life. You get to fly around the country visiting distilleries. With distillers who climb through the racks looking for the really cool and unique things for you to taste <laughs> uh, while you interview them and have conversations with them. And I looked up at him uh, and I said, from a 25-year brewer, uh, and maybe he's, maybe he's even a 30-year brewer, and a, and a five-year distiller, like, I will take that as the ultimate compliment thank you jason parker
2: at <laughs> 29 year brewer i think he said i think he started in 1989 okay I, yeah
1: i'll be honest joshua i've got so many numbers in my head <laughs> they all start to run together like a beautiful mind and i don't come out of it with any answers i just get more and more confused the older i get so <laughs> so perhaps perhaps this was an easter egg perhaps it wasn't uh, we're going to get out of here and we're going to give the misconception floor over to jason parker Cheers to everybody. Catch you oh. on the Whiskey oh. Jubilee wrap-up episode. What are you episode. doing?
2: Cheers. What are you doing? We don't do that. We don't do any of that.
1: Don't do any of first,
2: what? First we do the misconception, then we come out of the misconception, and then we cheers people.
0: That's
1: what I'm saying. I'm just I'm just cheersing now, let it go to misconception, go to the theme song, out? go to the Easter egg, call it good. Really? Absolutely.
2: I tried doing that one time. You shit all over me, my friend.
1: You took all the words in the introduction and rearranged them. Let's keep the theme going. It's
2: Halloween. It's not Halloween. It's November 2nd. (laughs) It'll be November 6th when people hear this. Maybe 7th. 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 Yeah. All right. So you're you're comfortable with this? Fuck it. Let's go bowling.
1: Look at me pressing the button twice. Um, so one of the things we do, Jason, is a misconception, and and we've we've run through a lot of these misconceptions now, and oftentimes with a with a producer, with a bottler, whoever it happens to be, there's always something about the age, or, yeah. you know, and we just had that conversation, um, or the color of it, right? The darker it is, the older, right? and so a lot of those misconceptions. But given our conversation today, I want to do something different for the very first time with you. Okay. Given that you've been very open about brewer, moving to distillation, is there a misconception that you had about distilling that has since been debunked
3: with all the work that you've now been doing with Copperworks? Uh, There's a couple. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, there's dozens, but uh, there's a couple of big ones. Um, My early understanding of whiskey is that barrels are uniform and that the barrels would produce a consistent product. And so that you could then pick a particular type of barrel and have a reliable product coming out of that barrel after barrel. And that's of course not only not true, but thankfully not true because right. that's what makes so much of the fun. Now why did I have that experience? Because I didn't understand like almost any consumer understands about the importance of blending. It is simply not talked about in marketing. It's not talked about in production. It's the one thing that they don't talk about. They first talk about water, then they talk well, they talk about tradition, and then they talk about water, and then they talk about um, stills, and then as few will talk about ingredients, the, the malt, but they won't talk about where the malt comes from unless you know, reply. And then they will finally talk about barrels, but never about blending barrels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so that was one really big one. Another really big one, and I'll tell you a little anecdote about this one that was kind of funny, I thought that if you had a still and you were unfortunate enough to have like, dropped a hammer on that still to make a big old dent in it, and you better save that hammer because when you replace that still, you gotta make the same dent in it. And that shape is so specific to the flavor that if you don't have it exactly the same, it's not gonna be right. Of course, you know, I mean, they laughed me out of of boardroom <laughs> room Forsyth when I brought that up. But it turns out that, you know, the still shape matters Yes, but everything going into the still and how you operate the still and how you treat it afterwards, what proof and what entry, proof what type of wood, what size, what the warehouse conditions are, are so much more dramatically impactful Mm -hmm. in flavor that it's, again, it's just one of the things is, uh, I just had no idea. And I think that's why so many young distilleries, meaning distilleries who are coming from people who did not have a distilling background, focus on the still first mm-hmm. when they really ought to be focusing on the wood first and then the fermentation right behind that. Mm-hmm. Those two things that they can really influence that they don't need to be... Um, uh, There's so, so much ease of information there. The stills are the type of thing where that's physical chemistry. Mm-hmm. That's physics. You, you really... You need to operate your still correctly, but you don't get to change the vapor point Mm -hmm. of products. You need to know what you have Um, and collect those that you want. And so it seems to me that um, the are now maturing into paying attention to the right things.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thanks for your honesty. You've been so honest all day that I figured you'd be (laughs) perfectly fine going down that path. There's a new wrinkle for it, so (laughs) there we are.
2: I mean, okay, uh, uh, a priest and a rabbi go, go into the supermarket, and uh, the priest wants to buy a ham, and the rabbi says, oh, I can't eat it. I can't, it's forbidden. Couldn't eat it. Not allowed. Pigs are like superheroes to them. Is it perfect? No. But I don't see you coming up with anything. And that, people, is what grinds my gears.